Good morning, everybody. It is not quite 7.30 Pacific Standard Time. Can you believe, can you believe that we are going to be starting the news? And now it's time for news without my son, normally known as news with my dad, because son is missing. I'll stand in. I'm standing in. And Julia is going to be working with me this morning, and I am scared something less. Joe, this is a show where we talk about the news. (laughs) We normally take turns. Joe usually takes the first turn. Joe, do you have a shout-out? I do have a shout-out. I want to shout-out for an absolutely remarkable young woman. Amanda Gorman, age 22, poet laureate, who gave the poem at the inauguration yesterday that she wrote, that she managed to meld, meld so many marvelous dreams into her poem. And not only that, a whole lot of it rhymes. And modern poetry hardly ever rhymes. And I would like to begin this morning by giving you a chance to hear her poem. So, go for it. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, 
but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it, because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a forest that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So. While once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the wind-swept Northeast where our forefathers realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. That is just absolutely phenomenal. Gives me goosebumps. Just phenomenal. I heard an interview with her, and she said that she suffered from a speech impediment as a yes, child. As a she child. couldn't say her R's until recently. And here she is on the largest stage in the land. Oh, boy. Super there inspiring. There is always light. If only we can see it, there is light. If only we can be it. Hmm. Just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, she's she's going places. Yesterday, we experienced 
one of the most remarkable political rituals in the world or indeed in the history of the world. And up until this one for the last 200 years, we've really taken it for granted. We couldn't take it for granted this time because there were over 100 Republican members of the House and six members, Republican members of the Senate who were willing to put political expediency and indeed political lying and political obeisance to the outgoing president rather than to the constitutional oath they took when they assumed the office in the House or the Senate and would have overturned a duly held, remarkably clean election that by a margin of over seven million votes concluded that the incumbent should be retired and Joe Biden should become president. Did you see um, Trump's speech yesterday morning? Oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. Okay. I'm, I'm going to talk about that. But before, before I get that's the passing of power, and that's what I'm talking about right now, the remarkable passing of power. When you think about George Washington is always revered as one of the two or three great presidents. And when you think about what did George Washington do, well, two of the greatest things that he did, one, when he was became president, and two, when he stepped down from being president. The first, when he became president, there was a question as to what the president should be called. How should you address the president? Would it be your highness, your excellency? And he said it would be Mr. Hmm. Mr. President, not your highness, not your excellence, not your great poobah, not emperor, but Mr. And then as he approached the end of his second term, the experts in Europe were all assuming that he would run again. And when he said no, two terms are enough. He set an example for the head of a government to voluntarily relieve himself, and it was always himself, and still is up till maybe next time, been himself, relieve himself of the office. Quite remarkable. And since that time, we have had the passing of power that we take for granted or did take for granted up until the last two weeks, where it is a miracle. It is a miracle. And the outgoing President Donald Trump violated his oath of office and those some 117 Congress people and six senators violated their term of office by trying to 
change that, make that not happen? Well, it happened. It happened. And as I watched the, the transfer of power yesterday, one of the biggest takeaways that I got was the contrast between the benediction of the outgoing president and the invocation of the incoming president as Joe Biden addressed his country and indeed the world in close to 30 minutes. I have a clip if you want to hear Go for it. Hear a little hear a little of Joe Biden's speech where he calls for unity. This is a great nation. We are good people. And over the centuries through storm and strife in peace and in war we've come so far. But we still have far to go. We'll press forward with speed and urgency, for we have much to do in this winter of peril and significant possibilities. Much to repair, much to restore, much to heal, much to build, and much to gain. Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once-in-a-century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us the dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from the planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. To overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and secure the future of America, requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy, unity. Unity. What a fact. Fact checked his remarks. And the only small fact check that uh, he was off a little was when he said that in the last year there had been as many deaths from COVID as all of the deaths in World War II. He was a couple of thousand short, but just wait 24 hours oh. and we're losing more than 3,000 people a day. I was wondering if that was if that fact was true. Yep. So PolitiFact concluded that with that small exception he was truthful in every statement of fact he made. Let us contrast that. I was just going to say, what are we going to talk about anymore? With the 10-minute speech given by DDT as he enjoyed his 21-gun salute and his military band playing music and his not inconsiderable but, uh, but not big crowd PolitiFact found that there were at least, in 10 minutes, six 
lies in what he had to say. Do you have a clip on him? I actually don't. I think we played one yesterday. <laughs> well, um, we, we, we can probably do without a clip. But <laughs> We don't want to hear was, him anymore. We're done. He was, he was true to himself right to the end in absolutely setting the highest bar, not any president only, but really any any holder of political office in the United States for lying. My my favorite part of his speech is when he said that this admin, this next administration is going to do great things because we set them up with a great foundation. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, if oh. you do that, if you set it up so that there is, I mean, really, it'd be hard to fail that hard, I think. It'd be hard to do worse. So, yeah, Biden's going to do great. Well, yesterday's yesterday's event was really remarkable. One of the most remarkable things about it was Mother Nature. It was in the 40s. And let me tell you, temperature in the 40s for an inauguration is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I was there in 2008 for Ooh, President Obama's... One. 2009. 2009, right, 2009, for President Obama's inauguration. I was, Meredith, my spouse, and I had been privileged to be two of Oregon's seven electors. Oh, so wow. we were we were two of the 400 and some electors that actually get to vote on who the president, the, the, the votes, the only votes. So you were really part of count. the Electoral College we in were. Oregon. We were. I, cool. I was privileged to be part of the Electoral College for both of President Obama's election and cast one of the 200 and some, well, th- first time 300 and some ballots, votes for him. And it was cold. I mean, it was really, really cold. I remember the first, the first inauguration with which I was peripherally involved was, was Kennedy's in 1960 when it snowed the night before. Mm. There was nearly two feet of snow on the ground. Cars just stranded in the streets all over town and it was cold. Well, yesterday it was almost balmy. Wait, hold on a second because have you seen all those memes of Bernie Sanders? You're probably not big into memes, but there's a big movement of people taking Bernie Sanders photo from yesterday where he was all bundled up with his mittens. Bundled up with his gloves. Yeah, and yeah. putting it in different scenarios. Um, there's one where he's sitting next to Forrest Gump. There's one where he's sitting with the uh, the Stark family in Game of Thrones. And uh, he looks cold. Well, Bernie's an old man. <laughs> <laughs> he's, but he's from Vermont. He should be able to handle but, but some I, but 40 degrees. But I gotta degrees. tell you, the temperature was in the 40s. Okay, I believe and you. The temperature's in the 40s is really, really different from what it frequently is. And and the and you speak of you speak of Forrest Gump, by the way. Last night, Forrest Gump, otherwise known as Tom Hanks, <laughs> MC'd, hosted the virtual musical celebration. Oh, yeah. Which was which was wonderful. But he he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The Lincoln Memorial is very special to me. It is where I proposed to Jefferson's mother. Oh. Long time ago. <laughs> anyway, and he conducted a remarkable virtual concert with 
performers performing from all over the United States rather than gathering in one place. Anyway, it was quite special. Because most years there'd be like an inaugural ball, right? Balls. Balls. Balls, Lots plural. of them? Several of them. I all had, over D.C. or all over the country? All over D.C. Okay. Just D.C. Uh, I had the privilege of attending one of those balls when LBJ oh, wow. was became won his election after he'd actually been president for for over for three years and was elected. I had I'd been a uh, an advanced person for LBJ and so I was privileged to be invited. What does that mean, an advanced person? That means you go to places where the president is coming to prepare everything so hopefully when the candidate comes, everything goes smoothly. Gotcha. And and that was fun. I, I advanced two two cities. The the second was Columbus, Ohio, and that was very interesting. the The first one I was I was second in command of the the advance team for Butte, Montana, when LBJ went to Butte, Montana, and I learned a lot from that. And a couple of weeks later, I was in the Senate office of Senator Ernest Greening of Alaska, who was one of the one of the best senators in my lifetime. He was one of the two who had the courage to vote against the Tonkin re- resolution that got us into Vietnam. Anyway, I was there because Jeff's mother was his receptionist, and mm. uh, and the phone rang on her desk. And it was for me <laughs> from Marv Watson, who was free the, cell phone. Clearly, he, he called he, the landline. He, Marv Watson was the boss of LBJ's campaign, and he'd called my office with the law firm where I worked, and they had said, "Well, he's up on the hill. You might try." And he said, "Joe, we need somebody to go to Columbus, Ohio, to advance for the president because the president has just agreed to go there." Could you do that? And I said, well, yeah, I guess so. When? And he said, well, the plane leaves in an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I hot-footed it back to my apartment, quickly packed a bag, quickly got myself to Washington National, which is now called Reagan, but I still think of it <laughs> as Washington National. I walked onto the plane, and they closed the door behind me. It was that close. They were waiting for you. And I went, and I was, the, <laughs> I was in charge of the show in, in Columbus. But anyhow, for that reason, I wow. was invited to a ball, and Susie and I attended the ball. It was neat. Satchmo was one of the entertainers at that ball, mm. and we were close to him as he played his trumpet and and saying, and then President and Mrs. Johnson came and danced. Anyway, no balls this time. No, no dancing this time. Hopefully there will be in four years. I heard an interesting, speaking of balls in four years, I heard an interesting stat this morning on my drive here on NPR that said there is a lot of scientists who believe that we have reached a peak and we are coming down from that peak of COVID. Let's hope so. Yeah, numbers are falling. Let's hope so. Hospitalizations are falling. Let's hope so. I know that's off topic. Uh, We're still talking inauguration. And and if if Joe Biden is able to keep the promise that he has made 
or at least a proposal that he has made, to have 100 vac- million vaccinations in the next 100 days, hey, we, we'll be well by, on fall, our way. by fall we might be out of it. And, and Fauci, Fauci says, yeah, he thinks that's possible. You, you just got to get it out. The, there is now in Portland going to be a, I don't know it's 24-7, but anyhow it's seven days a week place at the convention center right. where you can get your shots. You still have to have an appointment. I, I, I understand because of my advanced age that I may be eligible next week. Absolutely. Well, Joe, Biden did not waste any time yesterday. He signed 15 executive orders at least. I don't know if you saw that stack of on his desk, but he had I a huge watched, stack I of watched orders. Him, I watched him sign, and I couldn't help as I watched him sign to contrast the matter-of-fact way that he would sign one, close it, put it aside, <laughs> sign the next one, close it, put it aside, compared to DDT's ostentatious holding up what he had signed <laughs> so everybody could see his flamboyant and unreadable signature. He was just so proud that he knew how to sign something. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my. He should have been a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so we yesterday we rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, one order will rejoin the U.S. with the World Health Organization, reversing Trump's withdrawal of the U.S. from the International Health Agency. Another requires masking and social distancing on all federal property. Other first-day executive moves on Biden's part address immigration policy. The national emergency that Trump declared to divert funds to the border wall will be ended immediately. Biden is also ending the so-called Muslim ban. And over 40,000 visas had been turned down because wow. of that ban. Uh, earlier on in Trump's term, he issued... Oh, that's... We already... We covered that. We don't need to keep going on that. But yeah, so all these things, you Rejoined know... the Paris Accords. Four years. Four years and suddenly it's over. Rejoined the Paris Accords turned said no to the oil pipeline right big one big one the other stuff that uh, that he has done that is remarkable is his cabinet appointment his cabinet nomination not appointments because they're all they're all nominations there's one approved but he got one he he got he got the dni that that the the national director of intelligence Got, Seems got like an that, important one. You got that one approved, which is a good thing. But uh, the the breadth of his his nominations is truly remarkable. The gender and cultural background and ethnic background truly remarkable. And one of one of his appointments is I find particularly interesting. Rachel Lauren, who is the trans, who presently is the Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, he has appointed as the Assistant Secretary to the to the to health, and Rachel is a transgender, mm-hmm. and that will be the highest ranking transgender in the federal government ever. Uh, if confirmed. And another interesting thing is the religious background of his cabinet level appointments. Uh, eight Catholics, uh, something like six Jews, a uh, couple of mainstream Protestants, uh, some who are not identified, but no evangelicals. Hmm. 
And that, of course, is a major difference <laughs> where where Trump's cabinet was replete well, speaking with evangelicals. Well, speaking not, of religion, I was amazed yesterday by how, um, how much religion played into the inaugural speech of Joe Biden. And I know that he's a religious man. I just... It was it was surprising to me to hear it, and then to contrast that with our 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 last president, who, for some reason, has huge support among Christians and among evangelicals, and spoke of two Corinthians, <laughs> <laughs> because he was reading from a teleprompter, and he saw what was probably a two D, <laughs> meaning that he should have said Second Corinthians, which is the. <laughs> way that most people, particularly anybody who knows one end of the Bible from the other, and he said two Corinthians, which demonstrated to the world that he didn't know anything about the Bible. And when, when asked about his favorite part of the Bible, he said, well, all of it, all of it. I would like to know if that included all of Leviticus, which, which is replete both with commands to commit genocide and also boring after boring after boring passage to eat and what not to eat <laughs> what to wear and what not it's to probably wear probably his favorite part if, if he really loved all of that too joe we are talking a lot about biden's cabinet picks and i do want to let our listeners know that at 8 30 we're going to be joined by mel gertov to talk about biden's foreign policy team I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be a very interesting conversation. But what else you got on cabinet picks? Well, gen generally on the on the inauguration, a couple more comments. International reaction has been just about universally favorable, especially the head of the European Union went out of her way to say that they had waited for this moment and how happy they were that this moment had taken place and so hopefully we are going to be rebuilding our alliances and having sensible actions there. The news coverage, I, I always spend a little bit of time on Fox every day, so, so I just understand what the dark side has to say. And I, I am still astonished sometimes at how negative the evening shows on Fox are. Laura Ingraham spent most of her show last night finding every possible fault that she and her guests could find on the inauguration, just criticizing everything, starting, starting with what CNN had to say about DDT's departure, as if somehow Joe Biden was responsible for that. It is quite amazing. Uh, DDT took his family with him to Florida. I wonder, and, and that means, of course, that the Secret Service is no longer going to have to go down the street in Georgetown when they need to relieve themselves. I heard that. Heard that story? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the, but tell our audience in case they haven't heard yeah, it. Yeah, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump have a house in Georgetown which has count them, six toilets, six places where one can go to deal with biological necessities. And they told the Secret Service that they were not welcome to use any of the bathrooms in their house. So when the Secret Service 
first started providing service to them, they had to put up a porta potty, which made the neighbors <laughs> very unhappy to have in a, a porta potty on the street in Georgetown. And finally, the Secret Service found a neighbor down the street that had a basement, a basement unit that they could rent for $3,000 per month. So and that's our taxpayer money right You and I, as taxpayers, have paid over $100,000 because the Secret Service was not allowed to whiz (laughs) in the bathroom of Jared and Ivanka. So they're not going to have to put up with that. So, but the Secret Service still does protect Trump until he's officially that uh, is correct well the secret the service will always protect him not that, that, if he gets no yes, if, yes right? i even even if he is even if he is tried and found guilty and the reason for that is the secret service protection for the president is not because they think the president needs to be protected but because the president has or should have a whole lot of knowledge between his ears that would be very dangerous to come into the hands of an enemy. Mm. So the reason for the Secret Service protection is to make sure that the ex-president is not kidnapped. But of course, when you Eh. think about it, since since DDT never read his intelligence (laughs) briefings, he may not have a whole lot between his ears on that subject. So it might not be all that necessary. I was under the impression that if he was found guilty, he lost his Secret Service detail. I don't think he loses, but but he loses his pension. Right. And he loses his press uh, uh, allowance, and he loses his travel allowance, all of which is quite considerable, by the way. Yeah, all of which we would be paying for. So yeah, let's hope that yeah. doesn't happen. Well, but, Joe, we got a text, and it is related to what we're talking about, but on a little bit of a different note. Go. It says, Joe, what are we going to do about the rioters in Portland? They tried to destroy the Democratic office in Portland yesterday. Did you hear well, about this? As, as you know, this is a very sore subject with me. I am one of those folks who definitely classifies himself as a liberal, definitely puts himself on the left side of the political spectrum, who has absolutely no sympathy for folks who pollute peaceful protests by breaking windows, by looting, by graffitiing. Well, this was a pro-Trump rally yesterday. I know know it was pro-Trump, but whether it's pro-Trump or anti-Trump, Pro anything or anti anything, there is no excuse for punishing residents of homes or businesses, either small or big, by destroying their property. And eight uh, people were arrested yesterday. I'm glad they're arrested. They should After be prosecuted. Everybody the- who does this, I want them arrested. I want them prosecuted. I want them convicted. And then. I want the judges to require, as part of their sentence, require them to do two things. First, to sit down with their victims. Did you break the windows of the small business? You need to sit down with the, the owner of that small business and hear what it meant for your invasion of that person's life, that person's well-being, that person's property, 
that person's means of putting beans on his or her table. And the other thing is if they're if it is physically possible to require them to physically go and help correct the damage that was done. I just thank you for asking that question. That's just something, and, and I would plead, I would plead with everybody who participates in a peaceful march, in a peaceful protest, to be on the alert for those folks who will pollute that march. And, and, and this is really important. Laura Ingraham, last night, quickly, quickly pivoted from what happened on the 6th of January at the Capitol to what happened in Portland yesterday, mm-hmm. as if to excuse the one by the other. We just can't allow it to happen. Your thoughts? I love a good protest. I was talking about how uh, four years ago today was the Women's March in Portland, which I participated in, and all over the world. Um, and it just this incredible display of, you know, tens, tens of thousands of people walking through the streets of a city that I love. That to me is a beautiful protest. That the night where everybody went on the Burnside Bridge for uh, George Floyd it's is such a, a beautiful protest. Such a marvelous thing that was. There is so many good ways to to show the world that you are engaged, that you are listening, and that you are asking for change. And I agree with you. Destruction of property not a good not a good look in any scenario. Um, the Capitol riots. When you're, uh, you know, stealing, trying to steal Nancy Pelosi's laptop and uh, desecrate her office and steal stealing things from our from the people's house, I find that abhorrent. Um, I find breaking windows in the Democratic offices in Portland pretty bad, but better than violence towards humans. I would say violence towards property is better than violence towards humans. No, um, not better, less bad. There you go. That's a better word. Less. <laughs> bad but uh yeah you know it's the the whole nation yesterday was ready for riots and protests at capitals and i feel like none of that happened and then portland had had a little scuffle and we're famous for our scuffles here and so of course we make fox news we make npr we make you know cnn because they have to talk about something yep why not talk about portland yep and our crazy anarchist ways here I've got some comments, just miscellaneous comments on D.C. politics. Something that I think Congress needs to do is they need to pass a law that says any appointment, any hiring by an outgoing president with X number of weeks or even months, but at least X number of weeks before he or she retires, to civil service posts above a certain level shall be considered not civil service posts, but hire at will so they can be fired. Because as an example, DDT installed a, a, in, a, in a very high civil service protected job in the National Security Agency, somebody who has absolutely no business being there in just the last couple of days. And they can't be fired. Hard to fire them. Hard mm-hmm. to fire them. There needs there needs to be a law that keeps that from happening, because he he was trying to leave his pollution as much of his pollution behind as he could, and that is simply 
not okay. Another comment on the D.C. scene. Some members of the House are bypassing the metal detectors because they don't want it revealed that they may have a gun in their pocket or in their purse. And there's a very high correlation, by the way, between those people and mask resistors, folks who say you shouldn't have (laughs) to wear masks. And my son Jonathan had a very astute observation yesterday. He said, he, he said, do you notice how close a correlation there is between people who resist wearing masks and who say for being forced to wear a mask violates their constitutional rights and yet are great proponents of dress codes for women <laughs> who tell women how they are supposed to address Interesting in correlation. court or on the floor of the Senate or the House. Another miscellaneous comment. What are the QAnons going to do now? I wanted to talk to you about this. That none of none of the stuff that Q has been saying was going to happen. Yes. Happen. I want to talk about this because Go for it. I um I have I I unfortunately have a couple of friends that have fallen into the, the world of Q. Oh my gosh. Um I think that they wouldn't call themselves Q anon people. I actually think one of my friends doesn't even know what that term means, but she does she does follow the Donald Trump's going to save us, and uh, the, there's a ring of pedophiles led by the Clintons, and all of that stuff. And the and the election, the election was rigged. The ele- oh, clearly the election was rigged. And, and one of her favorite things to say is that Donald Trump really loves us, and we don't understand how much he loves us. And I just, I don't know how to respond to her when she says that to me. <laughs> but you know, yesterday, the the QAnon people were thinking that, okay, Trump's going to do some big thing because he has to save us from these pedophiles and he's going to make this big stand to save us today and we're all going to be saved. And it didn't happen. And some of them, some of them are saying, well, maybe we've been misled, but some a lot of them, of them are saying maybe Biden is Q. They're yeah. just switching to the other guy. And and one of the things they say, look, there were 17 flags. <laughs> oh, that's a clue. And why is that a clue? Because Q is the 17th letter in the alphabet. Absolutely phenomenal. So, yeah, there's a faction of them that are saying, okay, well, we we actually think Biden is Q now, and we're just going to pivot and keep all of our beliefs. But instead of Trump saving us from the pedophiles, Biden's going to save us from the pedophiles. And and what, what are all the prophets going to do? There were a whole lot of prophets who prophesied with absolutely... No doubt in their prophecies that DDT was going to serve a second term. Well, this is often my question for people who have either like doomsday prophecies or conspiracy theories is at what point when your when your prediction doesn't happen, do you pivot? Do you change your belief? Because at this point, everything you said was going to happen didn't happen. So how do you... I know it's a whole process of deprogramming, but how do you deprogram yourself? How do how do you then say when at what point is it gone too far where you have to say, "Okay, I was wrong." Very hard. And it it is a very hard very thing to hard. say. I was very wrong hard. is not in yeah. our is not an yeah. easy th- vocabulary word for us. Well, we did get a text saying, "Can we find out if those arrested for vandalizing the DPO were Antifa or Trumpets or what? Who were they?" I am googling it because our our list our dear listener asked and 
you know, just I'm on the KGW website. They have a list of names of the people who were arrested. Um, I can't tell you any more than that. Um, they're all between the ages of 18 and 38. Uh, yeah, that's all I know. Um, they were carrying signs that said things like, we are ungovernable. Yes, and I suspect most of them were male. Uh, let's see. Yeah, we got a Kyle, got a Jean, could be either. Nicole, there's a Nicole, but yeah, most of them were. Alyssa. It looks like Three women, five men, maybe oh. four and four. Oh, if Jean is okay. Well, at least at least there was some gender equality. Yeah. <laughs> some, oh, by the way, something I've got to just mention. This is this is unimportant, folks. You know, we like to say <laughs> when when it's unimportant, we like to say so. But yesterday, at twenty two o one Northeast Twenty First Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Joshua the painter painted out the stop Trump sign that has been there for going on three it's years. Symbolically important. Symbolically important, but it was it, it was a thing that really made me cry. And the reason it made me cry is that I put a note out on next door, letting people know that that was going to happen. And I received more than 50 responses wow. from folks saying thank you how much that sign had meant for them <laughs> over the last nearly three years. There was one person who apparently didn't like it. I'm trying to figure out what it was that he seems upset about something. Uh, and I, I'm trying to figure out what it is. And a whole lot of those folks came to watch the ceremony. And we had a ceremony where we painted it out. First, we, we painted out the Trump first, because if we painted out the stop first, for a little <laughs> while there would have been a memorialization of Trump on our house. People would have thought you loved Trump. And we painted out the Trump first. And then, then we painted out, and then with just the stop, we invited everybody who was there to shout out, anything they wanted to see stopped. Oh. And folks shouted out some really neat things. Stop homelessness uh, was one, for example. And then we painted out the S and the P, leaving two, and invited people to offer a toast oh. to whoever they wanted to offer a toast. And they were wonderful toasts. And it was just it was just a really, really wonderful. And KOIN came and, and on the news yesterday evening. They had a little quick squib of a picture of our house. Oh, how fun. stop Trump going away. I definitely, so I have known you and Jefferson for about a year and a half, maybe two years now. And I have definitely driven by that house before I knew whose house it was and going, oh, look, it's the Stop Trump house. So <laughs> you made an impact. <coughs> oh, what neat. Well, yesterday was another big first in the Senate. Uh, we got three new senators yesterday. Georgia's two Democratic senators were sworn in, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, to the U.S. Senate. That makes four, uh, 48 Democrats, two independents, and 50 Republicans. However, Vice President Kamala Harris holds the tie-breaking vote in her new role. Vice President Harris administered the oath of office to Warnock and Ossoff just hours after she had sworn been sworn in herself. She also swore in... Democrat Alex Padilla, a former California Secretary of State, to fill her vacancy. All three of these new senators are record-breaking. Do you know why? Well, one is because he's Latino. 
So from Padilla California. is the first Latino senator from California. California. Yep. Warnock is the first black senator from, from Georgia. Georgia. And Ossoff is the first Jewish senator from Georgia. Yep. And the big question now is going to be what deal will be struck between Schumer yeah. and Mitch over how many people get to sit on committees, who cares the committees, what the rules are going to be. With a 50-50 split. And I, I have a forlorn hope. It's a forlorn hope, okay. but it could happen. The junior senator from Alaska has expressed some thought about whether or not she could continue to be a Republican oh. because of all the shenanigans. And an example yesterday, 10 Republican senators voted against confirming the nomination for the Director of National Intelligence. And why did they do it? Well, for at least some of them, the only reason was they are wanting to run for president in four mm -hmm. years, and they're laying down their markers for the Republican base. So I've also heard that Ted Cruz may be forced to resign, which would open up a Senate Wouldn't that seat be in wonderful? Texas. But how do you force that, him? To, how do you force him to resign? Well, I know all of the. I don't. Know, I don't want to say all. I know a, a significant number of major newspapers in Texas are calling for his resignation, as well as some pretty high up people in the Texas government. Oh wow! So there is a chance. Well, I if mean, there is a real grassroots thing in Texas, that would be great. But I, I have a hard time for his, his ego, mm -hmm. allowing that to happen. But anyhow. If Murkowski were to jump ship, and so it became fifty-one forty-nine, and she she wouldn't have to become a Democrat. She could all she'd have to do is become an independent, mm -hmm. and then one of the three independents who voted to organize with the Democratic Caucus could that be would a game change changer. a whole lot of things. So, what do you think it's going to look like going forward? Do you think that this? Um, a, a Schumer Senate is going to be able to get a lot done? Well, I think we need to talk to Joe Manchin. <laughs> <laughs> Fair we, enough. We, we, we should start there. In just about 10 minutes, we will be joined by Mel uh, Gertov to talk about Biden's foreign policy. But uh, what else What else do we need to cover this morning? There's so much to talk about, Joe. Oh, there is really much to talk about. Uh, what, more miscellaneous DC news. 20 of the top 30 big company supporters of Republican candidates have cut off contributions to the campaign chests of the folks who voted to overturn, to, to violate the United States Constitution. Mm -hmm. And I heard Senator Hawley's having a quite a time. With yes. his supporter or his money, yeah, money but what, issues. His, his his biggest single supporter has has pulled ship. He so lost that, his book contract. They they're still using they're still raising money. The ama it is amazing to me how successful DDT has been in raising money because He's of the quote rigged election close quote. We should not just be just one example. Matt Matt Getz. Matt Getz, the Gates, the, I believe he the, pronounced his name. The Florida Congress, congressman, in 11 hours, 
I received in 11 hour, 11 hour period, 11 fundraising appeals one from Mount Getz. And every single one of the email addresses from which those requests came was a Trump email. It was mm-hmm. MAGA, or what, one of those that were clearly a Trump thing. And I wonder what is the, what's the, the sharing deal yeah. between Matt Getz and the coffers. But what we well, know and is... when does it stop? Th- what we know is that DDT has well over $200 million available for him to commit mischief over the next several years, which I would think would make those Republicans who in the Senate who are influenced most by political expediency and not by devotion to the country and the Constitution think it might be a really good idea to convict him so at least they don't have to worry about him heading the ticket in four years. On the other hand, some of them might figure, hey, $200 $200 million, it would be awfully nice if he would send some of that money my way. Well, McConnell kind of took a, finally took a stand. McConnell did, and I was surprised on Tuesday at that. night. And I actually, we played this clip yesterday, but I do have a clip of McConnell's speech. Go for it. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. But we pressed on. We stood together and said an angry mob would not get veto power over the rule of law in our nation, not even for one night. Remarkable. And, and that it's particularly really was not that, that remarkable, but it is that it's coming from Mitch McConnell. Well, I it mean. is remarkable <laughs> it's coming from Mitch McConnell. It's, it's not remarkable. You should have said more. That it's tr- <laughs> because it's true, but because it's... And, and one of the powerful people he was talking about... Was Donald was the, Trump. Was the president of the Senate. Who happens to be... The, who happened at that moment to still be the vice president Pence. Okay, what all, the last thing miscellaneous on what's happening in D.C., Dominican, the creator of the voting machines, suing various people, and one of the persons they are apparently going to sue is Mike Lindell, the, pickle, the, the pillow person, the pillow guy. And why is that significant? Well, because Mike Lindell actually has a pretty deep pocket. He has become a multimillionaire because of his success in selling his pillows. And there's so many conspiracy theories about him, too. Oh, yeah. He's in there. And, and, and he has said, well, I welcome the suit because that's going to give me an opportunity to show how the election was rigged. He is going to be very, very disappointed when his lawyers tell him, Mike, you have to understand that you have been duped and all this stuff that you have been thinking is true is not true. And maybe you should see if you can settle this case so we don't have to go to trial. That's going to be interesting to watch. Well, Joe, we got about two minutes before our guest joins us. Okay. Well, a couple of international things I'd just like to mention. Absolutely. North Korea has apparently developed a missile that will come off submarines. That's pretty scary because a missile that come off submarines submarine can lie off the coast of California 
and shoot a, a short-range missile into just about anywhere in California. That is troubling. Very interesting is something I'm going to ask our guest about is the supreme leader. I'm not clear if it's the supreme leader or the second-in-command in Iran, but nonetheless has urged Biden to rejoin the Iranian compact, which I find very interesting because the hardliners there were, were opposed to it when it when it happened. So that's something for us to mm. talk about. The uh, they want to end the sanctions, I believe. Of course, they want to end the sanctions, and, and there there could be a real opportunity for a major breakthrough. And if I were if I were Joe Biden, well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask our guest we're about gonna, that because yeah. he knows he knows more about I that than we'll I, than that I do. We can talk about the next that. One. COVID, Biden said the worst may be ahead, but there is there is indication that maybe we've hit the peak. Yeah, and and we'll have we'll have to hope that's true. Although the folks who said goodbye to Biden to to Trump yesterday, <laughs> some of them are going to wish they hadn't been standing. Well, he's cheek already to had jowl. it. So oh, but but those people were none wearing masks, and they were all packed in shoulder to shoulder, and they were all shouting, sending out the, the, the not just the droplets, but the the uh, well, one blocking on the word the aerosols the aerosols that uh, carry the virus, so we will see. Just a couple of factoids, and then we'll go to our guest. Factor by which the word hate is said more often on Fox News than on MSNBC, five and a half to one. Wow. Five that and a half to one. That doesn't actually surprise me. I don't know why I said wow. The number of climate disasters worldwide between 1980 and 1999, 3,650. Between 2000 and 2019, that is 20, the next 20 years, 6,681. Hey, climate deniers. Double. Double. Absolutely double. Another interesting thing, number of celebrities offering to record personalized video messages for a fee on website Cameo, 40,000. Got to make it's, that money somehow. Oh, boy. And it's doubled. It doubled last year. I believe the pandemic was really good for Cameo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't be in person. You can it get... It definitely was. Can, and so, do we have our guest? We do. As President Biden enters office, we are awash with domestic issues. But how will his administration tackle foreign policy? We are joined now by Mel Gertoff, professor of political science at PSU. Good morning, Mel. Good morning. Thank you. thank you for joining us. And something is very interesting. What one of the historically, historically, many presidents have come in wanting to talk about domestic stuff, and suddenly discovering that their domestic policies are are put on the back burner because international takes takes effect, and that easily could happen with President Biden. And Doctor, first tell us just a little bit about yourself, how you happened how how you happened to become a professor of political science at PSU with expertise in the foreign policy area. Well, uh I started my career I guess as a an an American history major actually, uh, back east uh, at Columbia University and um for some strange reason got 
quite caught up in American foreign policy in Asia, and that led me to uh, an expertise on uh, China and including the language. And uh, that took me to Taiwan for advanced language training, and then I was hired by the RAND Corporation in uh, Santa Monica, California, and that's that's what got me to the West Coast. And from there, uh, after a long uh, period at uh, University of California, Riverside, I made it to Portland, and um, now I'm... I'm retired and living about three hours southwest of there in a little place called, <laughs> if you can believe it, uh, Deadwood. I doubt that you've heard of it. Um, but uh, I continued to write a blog and uh, and to write on foreign policy. And my latest book, which came out uh, last summer, um, is on Trump's foreign policy called America in Retreat, uh, which I think is um, a good title for what has happen now with Joe Biden, because I think uh, the restoration of America in the world is what uh, Biden is aiming at. Your writing on the subject of Biden's foreign policies appears on Counterpunch and elsewhere online. And one of the issues you raised was that several of his appointees have strong corporate and foreign ties. How do you see the biases of his administration affecting his foreign policy? Well, I think it's uh, fairly typical of people who are um, at the top. I mean, that was true in every other administration, uh, Democrat or Republican. Uh, these folks almost invariably have uh, have corporate, either corporate backgrounds or or become members of boards of directors of corporations. And um, and what that ine- inevitably seems to mean is that there's a bias in favor of um, multinational corporations doing business abroad which uh, certainly includes uh, all kinds of tax advantages. Um, It means that uh, trade deals are going to work in favor of of corporations and uh, less so in favor of worker rights, worker uh, uh, safety. Um, And uh, so that's that's where where things uh, almost inevitably seem to go. And although um, in the case of Biden, you have, unlike uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy advisors, some real expertise, uh, deep professionalism and all that, still uh, the bias is built into the system. That that bias is interesting, and of course there's, there is always an assumption, I think, that if you've been on the board of a corporation that you're going to come with a bias towards that corporation. But, but I, I have a question about that, and let me give you a little background for that. When I was district attorney, I noticed when former district attorneys were appointed to the bench to become judges, and when former defense attorneys, especially attorneys who had worked uh, as uh, pro bono, as as, uh, providing, providing service for destitute defendants, and there was a correlation between prosecutors being relatively lenient on sentencing and between former defense lawyers being pretty tough. And I suspected that that was because those defense lawyers had a pretty good picture of just how bad some of those defendants were. And I wondered if maybe some of those folks who come off corporate boards sometimes had to swallow hard seeing the corporation doing things that they, it shouldn't, and therefore that, that might be a good thing for them to have that background. What are your thoughts? 
Well, I think uh, that can certainly happen uh, if their values are in the right place, you know. Um, uh, I think certainly uh, from what I've read and, and heard of a number of uh, Biden's appointees, um, starting with people like uh, Jake Sullivan and uh, and Blinken, um, that these are people with a heart, uh, that they're, they're certainly well aware of uh, the enormous gaps between rich and poor around the world. And uh, the question, you know, really becomes, well, what happens to those values in the con- in the bureaucratic context of decision making? Uh, and it's it's easy for those values to get lost in the shuffle of uh, of debate within an, an administration. Uh, I've seen it happen a thousand times, uh, and um, we, we'll just have to see. You know, um, uh, all the all, all the expertise in the world as I wrote uh, for the piece that you mentioned, um, can uh, go by the wayside when confronted with, with reality. Uh, you know, just a, one, one among many examples that, uh, of, a, of a challenge that Biden will have to deal with pretty soon is the situation in Yemen, where you have a terrible destitution um, in, a, in a situation in which the United States has been providing very substantial logistical help to Saudi Arabia and and the the Yemeni people are being uh, and I'm talking about civilians not those who are involved in armed revolt uh, are are being uh, driven to the to the very edge uh, when it comes to uh, to the ability to survive and um, in that context uh, you know one might think that uh, people with a heart would see that the United States needs to stop its assistance to Saudi Arabia and totally reevaluate its policy uh, for the for the benefit of innocent people um, but will that happen uh, well we'll just have to see but it just uh, suggests the kinds of challenges that uh, uh, decision makers will corporate from corporate or any other background will have to face uh, and that of course comes uh, at the bottom fairly bottom of a list of other things that Biden is going to have to pay attention to uh, on the domestic front. The the Yemeni thing is is a real conundrum for me. Uh, and I'm wondering your thoughts. There are so many international conflicts where there isn't a good side where where you really don't 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 see either side as a good side. Is that one of the situations in, in Yemen where there really is is no good side between the rebels and the, the ins and the outs. Uh, probably so. Probably so. Uh, there's it. Yeah, it's hard to to identify uh, with with in, any one side, and thus the the it, it would seem to me. And I'm, although I don't speak as a, as a Middle East expert, but just logically, it would seem to me that uh, what the United States needs to get behind is uh, a a a strong ceasefire and uh, a, a negotiated format uh, that would uh, have to involve both uh, the rebels and the, and the government, such as it is, uh, as well as the outside players. Uh, I mean, the, the most important thing that the United States can do is to broker a nonviolent uh, solution to this uh, situation. Uh, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's simply immoral and irresponsible to be providing arms uh, or logistical help uh, to any any one side in that situation. 
Now, here's where also uh, uh, you you bring in the uh, the Iranian element, which is absolutely crucial since Iran uh, has been supportive of the Houthi uh, rebels. And that, in turn, takes you back to the United States, presumably returning to the uh, nuclear talks uh, with Iran, but in a different context in which uh, the Yemeni situation could be brought in as part of a larger effort to engage Iran. And I see where, where I see that where the Iranian leader has publicly invited Biden to rejoin to re, re, to to revive the deal. Yes, and uh, and I think that's a very positive sign. And uh, I, and of course, uh, that statement is in response to many that have been made uh, earlier by Biden and his uh, and his advisors that the United States is very. Uh, determined to return to the uh, nuclear agreement, uh, although there will be, I think, probably new conditions uh, for uh, for the uh, resumption of talks. But, but to me, uh, that nuclear agreement, going back, of course, to Obama's time, was really an opportunity to expand the agenda from uh, from the nuclear uh, weapons themselves and and research and development and all that to the much larger agenda between the United States and Iran, which would involve really uh, a Middle East peace. Uh, of course, the Israelis under Netanyahu have been uh, very much opposed to that and are very fearful of where uh, Biden might take things with Iran. Well, that's too bad. Uh, the I think Iran is an essential element in any kind of negotiated uh, solution to, to the problem of uh, the militarization of Middle East affairs. And something something that Biden might be able to do would be to say, okay, you, you want us to revive the deal. Let's, one of the things, let's, let's tack five years onto the end of it, which would, which would be a really nice thing to have. Biden, Trump, and Obama before them all have favored Israel in Middle East plans. Is there anything really changing here? Should Americans be critical of the presidential office continued ties to Israel? Through throughout the different administrations. Well, here again, uh, we need to see uh, what, if whether or not uh, Biden uh, opens up a new chapter in U.S.-Israeli relations. Uh, personally, I think I think he should. And actually, at the very end of the Obama administration, I was struck by uh, some some possible changes that were in the wind. Of course, it came at the end and therefore couldn't be implemented, but. I recall in particular uh, a speech that John Kerry made as Secretary of State, which was quite critical of Israel, uh, pointing out in, uh, specifically that Israel has to choose between uh, being a Jewish state and a democracy. And, um, and at the same time, was, the United States was also distancing itself from Saudi Arabia. Uh, of course, all those uh, elements changed dramatically under Trump and now need to be changed, I hope, uh, again. Uh, but I think uh, I think Biden is likely to put some certainly put some distance uh, between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Uh, how far he's willing to go, um, you know, with with Israel, uh, it's the it's the usual problem of uh, uh, of having to face uh, con- so much pro-Israel support around the country, but especially in Congress. Um, but I am hopeful that uh, the the United States will follow the lead of uh, well, for example, Bernie Sanders. Uh, who talked about a a more even-handed policy as between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Because you have a terrible 
uh, and always combustible situation there, so long as, as U.S. policy toward Israel remains so awfully uh, one-sided. And, of course, that, that one-sided support in so, in so much of Congress does not relate to the position of what some people call the, the Jewish community. I'm not convinced that communities like the Jewish community exist, but polls pretty clearly show that the majority of folks who, who call themselves Jewish in the United States do not support the frankly illegal uh, invasions of, uh, of uh, Palestinian, removal of Palestinians, the, the, that one-sided policy, but the, 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 mon the big money, Sheldon Adel Adelson being one of the classic examples, the, the money was there, so that will be an interesting thing to see what happens. Pivoting, pivoting to your area of expertise, and by the way, you said you went to Thailand for, for language. What, what languages do you speak besides the one you're clearly very good at this morning? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm fluent in Chinese. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, what do you see as the significance of the sanctions that China has just announced on most of the outgoing DDT folk, uh, Trump folk, in uh, starting with Pompeo? Well, it's not surprising uh, because um, in the Chinese press, um, for the last, certainly for the last year, uh, Pompeo in particular has been pilloried uh, for his constant criticism of uh, China. In fact, uh, uh, Pompeo chose to uh, change the dialogue so that he was, he was always referring to China, not as China, but as the Chinese Communist Party. You know, it, he made it into a very ideological uh, challenge. And um, and that was, I think, a signal of just uh, the enormity of the criticism that he had for, for China. Uh, so, uh, again, it's not surprising that uh, the Chinese would finally decide that, uh, that this guy is officially unwelcome, along with all the others in the administration who have likewise followed uh, Pompeo's line. And, uh, and, and at bottom, what it really has to do with is that, uh, led by Pompeo, the Trump administration really uh, clearly identified China as the number one enemy of the United States, not simply a, a challenge for the United States or a country with different interests, uh, but one that was not worth engaging at all. I mean, they totally dismissed the idea of sitting down with China and, and trying to find common ground, which I think is essential to do. So, um, so that step of, uh, of making Pompeo and others um, persona non grata is, uh, is, is very much in keeping with the criticism of Pompeo over the last uh, year or so. And of course, a, a, a big problem we have in dealing with China and other, and other countries is how do we address stuff that they do domestically that we legitimately look upon as, as bad stuff, uh, how, how China deals with Muslims, for example, and, and one that just I'd like to ask, since you've been to Thailand, I note that Thailand has just sentenced a woman to 43 and a half years in prison for insulting the monarchy. Holy yes. cow, if, if, if we had that in the country, I would have 
three 100-year terms because I've been insulting the president for the last four years. How should we deal? How should we deal with problems like that in Thailand and China and elsewhere when domestically they are doing things that we find abhorrent, and yet at the same time it is not probably in our interest to have nothing but adversarial relations? Right. Well, that is a, a very, very difficult problem, um, and uh, and I might throw in something even more significant than the than the, the issue that you mentioned in Thailand, uh, and that is uh, Chinese uh, genocide in Xinjiang province, uh, directed oh, yeah. at uh, Uyghur and other Chinese Muslim populations. Uh, a situation that now there's where one situation where um, Pompeo's use of the term genocide has been picked up uh, and agreed upon by the Biden people. But uh, the question then is, well, what, what, if anything, can the United States do about that situation? Um, one thing it, it can't hope to do is, uh, with, when, when you have a situation as serious as genocide, um, is simply name and shame. Uh, it, you really you really have to have a, a fairly constant um, protest about it, but you also need to look at ways in which uh, the elements of uh, the genocide being pursued by a country uh, can, to the extent possible, be removed. And in the case of, uh, of Xinjiang province, you do have uh, opportunities to do that because you have American corporate involvement in various ways. Uh, you have... Uh, important products, starting with cotton uh, and tomatoes, believe it or not, that come out of Xinjiang, made made with um, forced labor, that can be banned from import into the United States. These things have already been done, and especially you have um, technologies that are used by the Chinese government, uh, and for for all we know, maybe by the Thai government as well. Um, to uh, identify people, uh, track their movements, um, track them by virtue of their ethnicity, and uh, those tech, those surveillance technologies, uh, often supplied from uh, abroad, uh, including U.S. corporations, can be banned from uh, export. So, to that extent, you can try to do something about the situation directly, but in the end, uh, you know, you're not going to expect that demands for change in policy uh, by the Thai government or by the uh, Chinese government are going to be met with anything but uh, but hostility. And of course, uh, uh, any government will then could then easily turn around to the, to the United States and say, well, look at your uh, racism. Look at how you deal with uh, dissent, especially in, in recent years. And, uh, well, there's a point there. And they, uh, not, yes. that, not that there's equivalence, but uh, there is a point. Just two days ago, the Trump administration became the first uh, administration in the world to condemn China over their treatment of the Uyghurs. Yes. Is that surprising that no one else has, has spoken up? Uh, well, actually, it's not quite true that nobody else has spoken up. I know the press treated it that way, but uh, the European Union, for instance, has made a number of uh, of statements of uh, expressing uh, its anguish over it, although that hasn't stopped it from signing in a very important new investment deal with China. Um, and there has been criticism, you know, here and there, but it hasn't been uh, very consistent, and it certainly hasn't uh, been very motivating. Um, and most surprising of all is that countries with Muslim populations 
which ought to be first and foremost uh, in, in expressing criticism of what the Chinese are doing, uh, have been silent. And why? Well, because money talks, and the Chinese uh, have money these days, which they're uh, spreading around quite a bit uh, in, uh, in the so-called Belt and Road Initiative around the world that they've been carrying out. And so, uh, in the end, uh, yes, most uh, overwhelmingly, there's been silence. Uh, that is, that's true. And at least some of those Muslim countries, and I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia, might be silent because they don't want to be calling somebody else else's kettle black because of the pot that they have. And while we're sure. talking, while I'm talking, you're talking about Saudi Arabia. It, I would really like to see Saudi Arabia decide that it was going to stop secretly removing Saudi Arabian defendants charged with crimes in the United States so they never have to face the music. And Do you see any possibility that Biden might take a stand on that following up on the leadership of our own, our own senior senator? Well, I uh, I certainly hope he does. But, you know, I think one thing we have to face uh, in a very general sense, and that is that, uh, as we started our discussion, um, Biden's foremost objective is domestic revival. And uh, and while it's, it's the case that there is no end of problems abroad, to the extent possible, he's going to remain riveted on uh, on that that priority to domestic uh, affairs, to the economy, to the pandemic. And something like uh, what, what you just suggested in, in uh, Saudi Arabia or um, including the Yemen problem, uh, I would put North Korea uh, in the same category, are pretty well down the list when it comes to initiatives. Um, they, may have, they may be forced by circumstances to respond to situations, but uh, I don't expect that in foreign policy, Biden is going to uh, take any any surprising new steps uh, anywhere. Uh, he's he's going to try to hope whether he, that whether the hope can be realized is another matter. But hope that uh, things can remain that uh, remain abroad at a low boil, and that he can have at least two years in which to uh, to make our domestic situation a heck of a lot better than it, uh, than it has been. And, of course, two years also has to do with uh, the next uh, set of elections. Following up on that, do you see whether or not uh, domestic issues might or even should limit the budget for foreign aid, military, and so on? Well, on the military side, it certainly should. Um, foreign aid, uh, I which has been brought to very low levels uh, by the Trump people, uh, is especially, I mean, talking about economic aid, not military aid, uh, really needs to be revved up in, in a number of places. But on the military side, uh, there's always room, uh, and in, in the case of the U.S. budget, uh, <laughs> more room than normal uh, for, for cuts. Uh, you know, we're all quite familiar with the, how bloated the military budget is, uh, you know, larger than, than military spending for, for the next uh, 10 or 12 countries combined, and that includes China. Uh, and so uh, a, move, a movement in the budget from, from one line away from the military to a number of other lines, including foreign economic aid, would be a very wise thing. And I would be surprised if that did not happen uh, in the 
in the uh, Biden State Department. In your article uh, in the L.A. Progressive, you say there are concerns that, quote, Biden's band of progressive idealists will engage in a costly and misguided crusade for democracy and social justice. Some people would say that Biden and many of his cabinet members have a record of imperialistic practices disguised as progressive policies. What are your specifically the concerns coming from in as we move into 2021? Well, what I was trying to suggest there, you know, looking back at American foreign policy since uh, the end of World War II, is that um, all too frequently, and of course the, the most notable example would be Vietnam, uh, liberal at liberal administrations have engaged in what is sometimes called liberal interventionism, uh, always with the presumed best of intentions, uh, democracy, freedom, and, and support for human rights, and so on, uh, all worthy causes in the abstract, but ones which get, get us into deep trouble uh, when we try to, uh, to manipulate politics uh, abroad. And although I don't have any particular candidates at the moment, um, uh, I think it's it's a what I was trying to point to in that article is the ever-present danger that in a liberal administration, uh, these um, these otherwise you know very professional and deep-thinking uh, strategists around Biden uh, may get tempted by situations which uh, may not even exist right now, uh, at least uh, right before our eyes. And so uh, we have to be uh, very careful about notions of building democracy everywhere or, um, or trying uh, a little too hard to, to promote uh, human rights. I mean, those are all worthy ideas. But, um, and, of course, <laughs> we have our own problems to deal with first uh, in, in those areas. But I do think liberal interventionism is, uh, is a constant uh, concern. Vietnam, of course, was the classic example of that. I remember I was at a... I was at a function in D.C. one night and, and was visiting with my spouse's boss, Ernest Greening, senator from Alaska. And, and I said to him, Senator, the thing that puzzles me is, this, is these hugely bright people down there. This was you know, the Secretary of Defense and all really, really smart people. How can they be so wrong on something? And he said, Joe, I just don't understand it. Yeah, well, it's that uh, crusading notion that um, seeps into the bureaucracy uh, and uh, can really infect uh, people. You know, it's it's the phenomenon sometimes called groupthink, uh, which um, may not exist, uh, uh, that, that psychological uh uh, consensus that suddenly develops uh, even among people who <laughs> individually may may um, despair of uh, of getting involved in, deeply in other countries' affairs, but then as a group suddenly make the idea of crusade seem like a very responsible thing to do. And of course, Vietnam, which I was very deeply involved in when I was with the Rand Corporation and involved with the Pentagon Papers, uh, I'm all too aware of. This has been a fascinating conversation, Professor Gertoff. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find your work? Uh, my blog is at uh, https 
uh, colon uh, backslash um, melgertov.com. Simple as that, melgertov.com. And it's called uh, In the Human Interest. Well, uh, and that's so Gertov much. with a V, folks. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> he is a big... Doctor, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Really Pleasure. appreciate your interest. Thank you very much. Well, that was fascinating. You're listening to X-Ray FM at KXRY Portland and KQAC HD3 Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Joe, we did it. We did it. We By did a whole golly, show we just about Jefferson. done it. Do you have a straw in the wind? I have a straw in the wind. Like a straw in the wind. Actually, I have two straws in the wind. Robert Sala has been appointed the coach of the New York Jets. Why is that significant? Because not only is he black, he is Muslim. Mm -hmm. Whoa. The other straw in the wind, the Illinois legislature has become the first state legislature to abolish wealth based cash bail. That could be a very significant straw in the wind. Yeah, I want to keep an eye on that. Well, we've sort of done it again. <laughs> we have. This is our second time in a week where okay. you and I have finished out the show together. So Thanks for being with us, everybody. We'll be back on Thursday. Monday. 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 Today's Thursday. We'll be back on Monday. You'll be back on Monday. I'll be sleeping on Monday. <laughs> <laughs>